make your way back in. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles on the table back there for you. If you don't have one with you, if you don't have an app or kind of whatever that looks like, feel free to grab one of these. Um, Our gift to you, take it home with you, read it, study it, know it, um, hide it in your heart. It's good stuff. So, uh, welcome to Christ the King. Again, super grateful and glad that you guys are here. Man, a good crew for a rainy Sunday morning. Um, so, hey, here's the deal. Um, as I mentioned in the beginning, we are finishing out our time in Mark's gospel this morning. Um, and if this is your first time here, you go, okay, wow, that's impressive. But no, like, really, it's super impressive because we've been in it for so long. Um, and now we're at the conclusion, right? We're at the conclusion. And so if you've been with us since the beginning, then you have been here for uh, close to... Uh, maybe 66 sermons, something like that, I think, in Mark. Um, is close to where we are now, and so we're finishing it out. Here we go. If you have a Bible, open up to Mark chapter 16. We're going to be reading today verses 1 through 8. And we're going to be addressing a question of sorts, okay? And the question is this, and it's a question that regardless of where you are as you come in here this morning, whether you are um, a a follower of Jesus or whether you're skeptical or you're having questions about what this whole Christianity thing looks like, it's a question that we can all relate with. And the question is this, um, how do we respond to fear? How do we respond to fear and confusion and uncertainty? It's, it's, it's feelings, emotions, circumstances, and situations that all of us can relate with. Now, we are going to look at it from this perspective this morning. How do we respond to fear, confusion, and, certain, and uncertainty as followers of Jesus? As we look to Mark's account of the resurrection, I told you guys a few weeks ago, it's really crazy because um, we were in like Good Friday, Holy Week season, right? And then um, Easter Sunday, we looked at Luke's account of the resurrection of Jesus. And then last week, we were at Mark's account of the crucifixion of Jesus. And now this week, we're at Mark's account of the resurrection of Jesus. And so I feel like we've just been running in on a loop for the past couple of weeks. And sorry, not sorry, right? I'm totally okay with that. Like, it's been really, really good for my soul, um, and I pray that it's been beneficial for you as well. And so, Mark's account of the resurrection of Jesus, as we observe Jesus' victory and the fear of his friends. Jesus' victory, right, over, over death and sin and hell and the grave, and the response of his friends to finding the tomb vacant, Right To finding the tomb empty, how will those who are coming to the tomb and are confronted first with Jesus' resurrection, his bodily resurrection, how will they respond? And what is the call? And so let's just acknowledge this in the beginning. Here's what we're going to be working towards, all right? Here's the call. Here's how we respond in light of what we see in this glorious resurrection account. We come to Jesus, okay? We come to Jesus. It's not complex, right? In fact, it's, it's ultra simple. We come to Jesus. As we are confronted with fear and confusion and uncertainty as followers of Jesus, when confronted with this question, how will we respond? The right response is always to come to Jesus. Okay, so we are quite literally about to have a come to Jesus meeting, if you've ever heard that before, right? We are we are happening right here this morning in Mark 16. And so as we finish up this series in Mark, uh, Mark's account of the good news of Jesus, uh, we are um, confronted with what uh, with what 
commentator Kent Hughes has to say about the crucifixion as we remember the cross of Christ and the cosmic uh, dimensions that are present by way of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Kent Hughes says this. We're remembering where we were last week for context purposes as Jesus is seized, tried, crucified, and buried in a tomb. That's where we left last week. Kent Hughes says this. He had created everything in the universe. Speaking about Jesus. Every speck of dust, every color and hue, every texture. He held and holds all things together. And so do you get that? Do, you, do we understand that Jesus, right, in light of, of the resurrection, and even, and even prior to his resurrection, that we're seeing the creator and sustainer of all things, and the one who holds all things together. He was and is the atomic bond that the most sophisticated science labs explore. Paul writes in Colossians 1 that all the universe was created by him and is moving toward him. And listen to this. Being God, both transcendent, pure, and holy, he became a child. And so we're referencing here the incarnation, right? The condescension of Jesus. From the right hand of the Father into his creation, his fallen, sinful, broken creation. And at the pinnacle of his manhood, he allowed himself to suffer the lowest, most humiliating death possible. Becoming sin for us, suffering, separation from the Father and the Spirit as he bore our sins alone. That's the context of what we leave from last week, the crucifixion of Jesus in Mark chapter 15, and come into this resurrection account. We see the suffering of Jesus at the cross, and we see simultaneously God's righteous judgment as well as his great love through the resurrection. In the resurrection, we see the sufficiency of Jesus' life and death. Seeing, observing, it being acceptable and pleasing to the Father, bringing about forgiveness, get this, and relational restoration between fallen creation and himself. So here's what we're saying, right? That the resurrection, as we approach it again from Mark's perspective, brings great understanding to the events of Christ's crucifixion and how his righteous life willingly laid down on our behalf was accepted by the Father, thus, get this, this is important, satisfying his righteous and holy judgment due sinners as a result of our rebellion going all the way back to Adam. Do we get that? The resurrection is evidence of the, of the acceptance from the Father of the Son's righteous and holy sacrifice. And so this morning, as we approach again the resurrection, I feel like it's Easter all over again. Here we are. The death of death. No, wait, that was a few weeks ago. No, wait, we're back in it this morning. The resurrection is sure. Here's what we can know. The resurrection is sure, right? That it's, that it's true, that it's, it's trustworthy. And we're going to talk about why that is so in just a, a few moments. The resurrection is sure and eternally significant. 
Wait a second. You're telling me that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead all those years ago is, is uh, practical and, and applicable and significant Today, here and now, yeah, that's exactly what I'm telling you. That's exactly what we are telling you, is that the, the, the resurrection of Jesus is eternally significant. Jesus's, Jesus defeats death, and in doing so, he ensures life for sinners and strength for Christian mission. Let me say that one more time. Jesus defeats death, and in doing so, he ensures life for sinners and strength for Christian mission. I love the song that we sang in light of these empty tomb ballads, right, that we, that we participated in singing together this morning, right? The, the mission of God to rescue sinners, right, to, to save sinners by way of the righteousness of Christ, his sacrifice for you and I, this great display of love for you and I that informs the way that we live our lives, right? And so the resurrection is both eternally significant while at the same time being, being monumentally important here and now, like right now. It's both eternally significant while, while totally transforming the way that we engage in the temporal, the way that we live our lives, what we live for, and what we are about. Three observations that we're going to make this morning. We're going to observe a, a resurrection witness from Mark's account. We're going to observe a resurrection response. What type of response ought the resurrection produce within us? And finally, we're going to look at resurrection trouble. Right, the, the trouble and this cliffhanger that we're left on as we, as we conclude our time in Mark's gospel. Here's our main idea. Through the resurrection, Jesus defeats sin and death, gathering the glorious, or guaranteeing, I'm sorry, the glorious future resurrection of his people. Through the resurrection, Jesus defeats sin and death guaranteeing the glorious future resurrection of his people. Let's look at Mark 16, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 8. This is God's word. You can follow along on the screen if you would like. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him, him being Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who's going to roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, but he is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. See for yourself. But, but go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And here it is. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. 
Let's pray together. Father, thanks for your love and your grace, your goodness, and your great generosity. We pray that as we approach uh, this account, Mark's account of the resurrection of our King Jesus this morning, that it might not be something that is, uh, that is, is old news to us, but we might again and again and again be amazed at this beautiful example, this beautiful illustration of your lavish love for sinners, your commitment to rescue us and to redeem us, to bring us into fellowship with you and to transform the way that we relate in fellowship with one another. May we as a body revel in the good news of the empty tomb and the resurrection of our King again this morning. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to begin by addressing the resurrection witness that is observable in verses 1 through 6. And so we already read it, but let's again go back and let's read verses 1 through 6 in light of this resurrection witness. Go there with me. Here we are. Verse 1, Mark chapter 16, a resurrection witness. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Okay, and so you've got a handful of women here who are going to the tomb of Jesus. These same women who had observed his death on the cross just a few days earlier are now going to his tomb in order to anoint his body, in order to prepare his body. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, which is, this is a super practical question. And it really informs our understanding of their expectation as they arrived at the tomb of Jesus. Hey, turns out there's this massive stone that is laid before the tomb of Jesus. How in the world are we going to move this thing? How are we going to move the stone and how are we going to get in? Who's going to move it away for us? Verse 4. And looking up, they saw, as they're engaged in this dialogue with one another, they see that the stone has already been rolled back. It's really large, right? Nice detail by Mark there for us, right? See it from some distance. Wait a second. This tomb that was previously sealed by this massive stone is now opened as the stone rests to the side. Verse 5, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And naturally, what is their response? They're alarmed, right? Whoa, didn't expect that. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. You guys know that because you were there. But he has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. And so we observe Jesus who was crucified and buried on Friday came back to life on Sunday. And it is on this point that Christianity hangs. Okay, this is the, this is the hook that holds it all is the resurrection of Jesus. And one thing that is most interesting as we observe a resurrection witness is that there are those who are present in this scene who can speak towards the validity of Christ's resurrection. While at the same time, we will see in coming days, Jesus bodily resurrected will appear to a multitude of people who will then speak of the same event. 
Christ, having been dead, buried in a tomb, is now physically alive. He is resurrected back to life. And I think a lot of times, here's what happens to us. We begin to question perhaps the validity of the witnesses, right? Well, what if they missaw? What if they didn't understand clearly? It's a handful of women. I mean, maybe they, maybe they were just hoping in something that uh, was not tangible to those who were, uh, to those who were around or would be around. Here's what the great English Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon has to say about the event that is the resurrection. He says this, the resurrection is a fact better attested than any event recorded in any history, whether ancient or modern. We're talking about an event on which our faith hangs. And perhaps you've heard Christianity described as a, 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 a blind type of faith, right? We just, you just believe, you just have faith. Here's what we're seeing based on the, the witnesses at the conclusion of Mark chapter 16, the witnesses that would follow, and this excerpt from Charles Spurgeon is this, that there are a ton of witnesses who attest to the resurrection of Jesus. Whether modern or ancient, this is an event that is most recorded in history. And it's an event and it's a reality and it's a truth that inspires within us gratitude, God's grace in securing witnesses that might attest to the resurrection of our previously crucified king. Here's what the great Anglican bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, has to say about the resurrection of Jesus. This is lengthy, so lean in with me, okay? Here we go. Let us all thank God that we have such a cloud of witnesses to prove that our Lord rose again. That's just the first sentence. You're like, that wasn't very long. I know, there's more. Hold on. I want us to pause there, though, and I want us to consider the gratitude that we perhaps offer or neglect to offer to the Lord in light of this this grand and glorious event that has been witnessed and attested to by so many. He says here that we ought to, as God's people, thank God that we have such a cloud of witnesses that support the resurrection of Jesus. And so let's, with, with gracious hearts and with thankful hearts, approach the rest of our time together. The resurrection of Christ is the grand proof of Christ's divine mission. He told the Jews they need not believe he was the Messiah if he did not rise again the third day. The resurrection of Christ is the top stone of the work of redemption. It proved that he finished the work he came to do, and as our substitute had overcome the grave. The resurrection of Christ is a miracle that no infidel can explain away. Men may carp and cavil at Balaam's donkey and Jonah, in the whale's belly if they please. But until they can prove that Christ did not rise again, we need not be moved. He goes on to say, 
Above all, the resurrection of Christ is the pledge of our own. As the grave could not detain the head, so it will not detain the members. Well may we say with Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Let me summarize a few points that that we can observe in Ryle's fairly lengthy quote. The resurrection provides proof of the validity of the claims of Jesus and his person. Jesus himself said, if I be not raised from the dead, then, hey, you know what? Just forget everything that has taken place. Everything hinges, everything hangs on the resurrection of Christ from the dead. The resurrection says, the resurrection provides proof of the validity of the claims of Jesus and his person. The resurrection says that everything that Jesus had to say then is true. Okay, if the resurrection is valid, right, if the tomb is indeed empty and Christ is alive, then everything that he said must then be true, which is incredibly challenging and incredibly informative at the very same time, right? If Jesus is alive, then then he is who he said that he is. Is. And if he is who he says that he is, then we have been observing through our uh, some 66 sermons through Mark's gospel, the words of God from Jesus. Everything that we have been called to do and dying to ourselves and surrendering our lives to him and, and living Christian mission. Right And and extending forgiveness by the power of grace, the spirit that now resides within us, and and reconciling broken relationships. Everything that we've seen is called to trust in and on Jesus for our lives, for everything. If Jesus is alive, then here's the deal. Then we've got to do that. Does that make sense? Like, we've got to do that. Why? Well, because he is exactly who he said that he was and is. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. He's the one who holds everything together. He created everything. And as the creator of all things, he is then able to dictate how we are to live our lives. Now we're confronted through this and in this over the course of our time together in Mark's gospel are massive failures. Are we not? We're confronted with our sin and we're confronted with our, our inability. We're confronted again and again and again with our need for grace. A grace that God extends to the repentant and the needy. And so how do we come in here today? How do we approach the, the ending of Mark's gospel? Do we come in here with haughty hearts? Or do we come in here with, with humble hearts? Do we come in here exalting our works that which we have accomplished by our own hands? Or do we come in here and say, I need grace again and again and again and again. I need a grace that saves me. I need a grace that sustains me. Looking to Christ 
as the one who holds us and keeps us. If Jesus is not resurrected, then our faith is in vain and we are to be pitied. This is the message of Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians chapter 15. But if he is alive, it proves that there is a God and that Jesus is God. Right? It, it proves that the Bible is true, that heaven is real, and that hell is real, and that the righteousness of Jesus makes the difference in you and I going to one or the other. Do we understand the implications of that? It's not our righteousness, but it's the righteousness of our self-sacrificing king that rescues us from destruction. It's the righteousness of our king in love, pouring out his blood upon the cross and taking upon himself all of our guilt and all of our shame and all of our rebellion so that we might be able to cry out together corporately as a fellowship and individually right where you are, Abba, Father. Do you guys get that? This is incredibly good news. Our destiny looks very different if Christ be not raised from the dead. And we are a people to be pitied. Because the implications are, right, that Christ is dictating our lives. Right, that he is ruling and reigning as king over our existence. And we are surrendering ourselves to, to him and his will. And if we do that and Christ isn't alive, then what are we doing? But if he is alive which we assert that he is, then everything looks different. The way that we think looks different. Right? The way we feel looks different. The things that we know look different. That the directions, the trajectories of our lives look different. Jesus' words, we're saying this together, Let's say this together. Not actually, like don't repeat it with me because you don't know what I'm going to say. <laughs> but let's just say this together. Let's like, let's just feel this and let's go, yes, like I can be on board with that. Jesus's words are reliable because of the resurrection. So we can look to worship and submit our lives to him because he came back to life. We can worship Look to and submit our lives to him because he came back to life. No, Jesus was not just asleep in the tomb and somehow stumbled out from behind this massive stone. No, Jesus did not have a twin brother who leveraged his death and his claims to generate a following and fame. No, the Jews didn't take him and no, the disciples didn't take him. But Jesus rose victorious over death. Right? He, he, he is alive. Right? He, he wasn't stolen. No body was ever to be to produce. The lives were transformed. And it's all because Jesus rose from the dead. And we have, to the glory of God, producing great gratitude within us, many witnesses of this fact. And so we see a resurrection witness. We see, secondly, a resurrection response. A resurrection response. Look with me at verse 7. This is so simple. I love the simplicity of this passage. 
verse 7. The instruction from the glimmering man in the tomb of Jesus. Okay, here it is. But go tell his disciples and Peter. Man, Peter is going to be so stoked to get this good news, right? Denying Peter, right? He's going to be really pumped about this. That he, being Jesus, is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Jesus fulfills his mission by rising from the dead. And Jesus enables our participation in mission through the power of the Spirit. Let me say that one more time. If you're a note taker, write this down. Type it in your phone, write notes. Hit that guy one time. Here you go. Jesus fulfills his mission by rising from the dead. And Jesus enables our participation in mission through the power of the Spirit. And so what do we do? Right? What do we do in light of this resurrection hope? What do we do in light of this assurance of that which is to transpire both temporally as well as eternally? Man, we do this. We go and tell. That's the instruction from the glimmering man to the women. Go and tell. All right. Now we're we're gonna we do not have a great commission account in where we are concluding our time in Mark's gospel, and I'll tell you why. But we do have a precursor to the Great Commission and this command, this call to go and to tell. And so what does it look like as we observe this go and tell and that which we know Jesus is to say to his followers prior to his ascension, which is to go and make disciples? What do, we, what do we do? How does this practically play itself out in our lives? What does it look like? That's a great question to ask, isn't it? Like, what does this look like as we observe, like, like application points from God's word, and we run it through the original audience, and then we see it find its way to Carrollton in our lives, and we ask, what does this look like? I mean, it's a question that we ought to spend some time mulling over. Here's a few things that I think that we can begin to do. Number one, we can tell one another. Tell one another. What is this? This is the church gospeling one another, right? That's what this looks like. We talked about it in the beginning, how there are tendencies that we possess to question and to to doubt, perhaps in light of conflict that we're experiencing in our life or pushback. We need to be able to, to gospel one another. We need to encourage one another by reminding each other that the tomb is empty and that our king is alive and that because that is so, he is ruling with sovereign power and supremacy over all of creation, right? Like I need to be able to say, hey, listen, Mac, let me gospel you for a moment. Let me remind you of Christ's resurrection, his defeat of death and sin. Right? And that which he is ensuring for his people. Strength to endure this life in the now. Right? And an eternal fellowship with him one day. This is what we have to look forward to. And our momentary suffering and affliction does not hold a candle to the hope of the resurrection of our king. 
And so we gospel one another. We remind one another. We need to be reminded. We need to be encouraged. If you're not being real there, then the Christian life is going to be a really difficult one for you. We need to remind one another that Christ, our King, is alive. And so we, we tell one another, but then there's also this evangelistic element to it. It's not only this, this discipleship element, but it's also this evangelistic element in which we go and we tell other people. Right? We are an evangelistic people. We proclaim the fallenness and the corruption of man. We proclaim God's great love, generosity, and forgiveness displayed through our crucified King. And the acceptance of his sacrifice by the Father, evidenced by the resurrection. We we go and we proclaim this news. If you want a really great picture of what this looks like, go to Acts chapter 2. And I'm not going to read it here, but you should. And I want you to consider the the structure and the format of of this this message, this proclamation, this sermon from Peter delivered there in Jerusalem at Pentecost following the coming of the Spirit of God to dwell within people. And he he goes through it and he he talks about fallenness and sin. He talks about corruption. And he talks about the inability of earthly kings to rescue us. To save us. He talks about our need for a greater king. Right? Who who secures salvation for his people. Who who rescues them. Not from from militaristic dictators of this world necessarily. But from, from sin and death. And then we see this call to response, don't we? We see a call to to respond. We see a people's heart pricked. There's a confidence in the gospel from Peter as he delivers this message at Pentecost. There's this confidence that the Spirit of God works within the hearts of men as the gospel, the good news, is proclaimed. And it leads broken, sinful people to proclaim, what do we do? What do we do? And so when we ask this question, what do we tell people? Man, we tell people what Jesus has done. We tell people the gospel. We share with them the resurrection of our king and his crucifixion. We share with them the availability of eternal life and transformed temporal lives here and now. Forgiveness from our sins. We tell them, and then this is what happens. This is incredible, and it removes all the pressure. Are you feeling a lot of pressure right now? Don't, because here's what happens. The Spirit of God does the work, right? Like the Spirit does the work. And so we are a people who desire faithful gospel witness, right? To tell others what he has done. Let me tell you what he's done. Right? He, he, he loves a people and he pursues after a people. He rescues a people. As we look to him, Jesus, in faith for forgiveness. Have you done that? Like have, you, have you trusted on him, right? Have you looked to him? Have you, have you celebrated what he's done? Have you seen your sin? Have you seen your need? And have you called out for forgiveness? We see that the Lord is faithful. We see that the Lord is faithful. And so we tell one another and we tell others, confident that Jesus, verse 7, goes before his people in death and in life. Did you notice that? 
There's this assurance. Hey, go and tell his disciples and Peter. Peter's going to need some gospeling right now. Okay, Peter's going to need to hear of the faithfulness of God despite our tendencies to fall away, to sin, to doubt, to struggle. And then tell him that he's going before you to Galilee. And there you'll see him just as he told you. We are confident as Christ's people that Jesus goes before us. That Jesus goes before us in death and in life. And so we have an assured hope not only of justification through the sacrifice of Christ, not only through sanctification through the Spirit's work within us, but resurrection and glorification. Why? Well, because Christ has paved the path. Right? There is a resurrection hope for God's people. Right? That, that as we stand before the Lord, that we will be received, not because of what we have done, but because of what He has done on our behalf. Romans 6, verse 5, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like his. Do you get the reality of the resurrection? Like, do we get that? Like, that that's real? Like, that because Jesus is alive, that there is a great resurrection hope for us in the future when we look to him and we call out and cry out in faith for forgiveness? It says something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Here's the deal. We're going to rise, okay? Like we're, we're, we're rising up, okay? Like we're, we're rising up. That's what's happening in light of, of the work of Jesus. And so the question then again, and we've said this over the past few weeks, but, but resurrection is a reality for us all. And so the question is going to be where will our righteousness be found on that day, right? Is it in us? Is it in what we've done? Or is it in Jesus? And so let's, let's, Work through this last point. We've got resurrection witness. We've got resurrection response, which is to go and tell, live mission, right? And then finally, we've got this resurrection question. Now, we have got this, this ending to Mark, which has been troubling for many, many people. And so let's take just a few minutes to try to unpack it. It says in verse 8, that they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, you might notice in your Bibles or on your apps that there are additional verses to the end of Mark's gospel that we are not looking at this morning. Verses which talk about Jesus' appearance to his disciples and, and this dialogue that he has and then Mark's Great Commission account. And you might also notice in your Bibles there might be a note that states that the earliest and most reliable manuscripts stop at verse 8. Which, if you stop at verse 8, leads us with this abrupt ending, doesn't it? Because the last thing that we read is that they are afraid, for they were afraid. Now, in an effort to explain this, some believe that the original ending of Mark's gospel was lost. And that it was later rewritten. Well, as others believe that Mark died before he could complete it. But here's what, here's what I'm going to present to you. Okay, I believe that there is an intentionality to this abrupt ending. That there's a purpose 
as we conclude our time in Mark's gospel in verse 8. You see, over 16 chapters, Jesus has spoken of his upside-down better kingdom. And he's spoken of forgiveness and rescue through his suffering. And it has been a struggle for Jesus' friends to wrap their minds around, right? At various points, we see them struggling to understand that which Jesus is saying. And here we see that the struggle continues with these women who are now fleeing from the empty tomb, hesitant and fearful and confused. We see similar scenes in Mark, and I'm going to point out a few of them to you because I think it helps helps us to understand the structure of this book. In Mark chapter 4, we see Jesus teaching his followers and the crowds, and as a result, we see massive confusion surrounding the person of Jesus, even from his followers. Make a note, go back and check out Mark chapter 4 later. There's confusion. What is Jesus saying? What is Jesus doing? What are the implications of all of this? You continue on and we see Jesus transfigured on the mountain. And at the transfiguration, there is great confusion surrounding the person of Jesus. Do you guys remember this? The the handful of disciples that are present say, hey, let's construct a few tents and let's hang out here for a while because this is really good. There's this confusion about what Jesus has come to do and to accomplish. Jesus is is not set here on the mountain with his followers, but his face is set towards the cross. He is committed to the accomplishing of this mission that had been laid before the foundations of the world. And so there's this, again, this confusion about what type of king Jesus is. And how he is to rule and reign. How he is to rescue a people. And then... We come to the resurrection here in Mark chapter 16, and we see yet again confusion. We're challenged through the ending of Mark as this gospel ends, and we're almost left just just hanging. There's only one other book that I can think of off the top of my head that has a similar ending to this, and it's the book of Jonah. There's an abrupt ending at the book of Jonah, and there's a tension. There's a question at the end of Jonah, and it's this. Did Jonah learn? Right? Like, did he, did he learn to, to pursue after and desire God's heart for people? Did he learn? We don't know. We don't find out. The last thing we read in the book of Jonah is that there's a bunch of cattle, a whole bunch of people, right? Like, that's the last thing that we get. Here, in a similar scene, we're left to saying, well, they run away afraid, but what after that? And what I'm telling you is this, and this is where we're going to begin to close our time out this morning, that I think that there is an intentionality to this. There's a question that we are to ask ourselves, that Mark's readers are to ask themselves, in the same way that Jonah's readers are to ask themselves. And that question is this, will we follow this Jesus? Right, this is the question. Right, we see the, the, the women, they see the empty tomb, they're running back, they're afraid, and then boom, it ends. We see that exaltation, the exaltation of Christ has indeed come as a result of great suffering and humiliation. And so we see our king and we observe his path to the crown and then we go, okay, is this the Jesus that I'm following? Am I I willing to follow after this Jesus? That's the first question. 
And so is that your understanding of who Jesus is? And in light of that, knowing then that uh, we are to follow in his steps, that our lives will often be marked with difficulty and fear and confusion that will drive us back into reliance on him, are we willing to follow that Jesus? Is that the Jesus we're following? That's the first question. The second question is this, why are we afraid? Right? We, we see that the women are afraid. And, and if we're honest with ourselves, right, we know that, that fear is oftentimes a part of human existence. But for God's people, we ask, why are we afraid? Why do we struggle? And why do we doubt? That's the question. And we're left there. Right? Like, it, it just ends. We're, we're left We're left relating with the women as they flee from the tomb in light of Christ's defeat of death. Our king is alive. And he is throughout Mark's account of the gospel and various other gospel writers. He displays his power over sin. He displays his power over over the elements. He displays his power over, over evil. And so we ask, why are we afraid? Why do we struggle and why do we doubt? Here's what we do. Here's how we land. Remember at the beginning we talked all about, what is this all about? Coming to Jesus. It's all about coming to Jesus. And so as we close our time, let us say this, that we acknowledge these thoughts. We acknowledge the struggle. We acknowledge the difficulty of following after this Jesus. And then... We come to Jesus. Or we acknowledge it and then we come to Jesus. We come to Jesus with this new perspective in which Jesus is bigger than our fears and our doubts. As we seek to live as God's people on mission, empowered by his spirit in this world, and we encounter fear and we encounter doubt and we encounter struggle, we are confronted in Mark chapter 16 with the reality of a resurrected king who is bigger than our fears. We're confronted with the reality, hear this, of a resurrected king who is bigger than our doubts. And he provides us faithfully with all that we need for rescue. All that we need to live mission is found in Jesus. Did you hear me? All that we need to live mission, to find forgiveness and reconciliation is available in Christ. And so, as we sit here, right, and we've, we've spoken of throughout our time together, not just this morning, but each of the past 66 sermons through Mark's gospel, we sit here and we observe God's love. We observe God's desire. We observe God's power. We observe God's mission. And then, as God's people, we come and we say, yes, right, yes. I'm saying yes. I'm following after this Jesus. I'm aware that the path will be difficult, that the road will be rocky. And as I experience bumps and divots along the way, then it's only serving to affirm my belief in all that Jesus had to say. Because you know what Jesus said? He said, following after me will not be easy. Right? But that you will encounter difficulty, that you will be persecuted. That's what it looks like to follow after Christ. But we are a people who are confident in the power of Christ to rescue sinners in this room and in this community. And as a result of that, we surrender all that we are to him.
hearts. We surrender all that we are to him. We look to Jesus as the truer and the better, the rescuer of our souls, and the one who is capable of encouraging us in this life and on into the next. He's conquered fear. He's conquered death transforms the way that we live our lives. And so let's look to him. Let's come to him as those who could not save themselves, but have been rescued by our king. Let's come to him.